On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking education. What if you are a parent and with all the craziness that's gone on in schools over the last year due to the pandemic, you don't think your kid is ready to move up to the next grade? What should you do? What can you do? We'll talk about that. We're going to talk about the LRT because a week from now, the head of Metrolinx is going to be in front of council to answer questions. What questions do councillors need answered in order to maybe move forward with this finally. And we're going to talk to Dominic Zampronia, who plays Dante on General Hospital, local guy, Hamilton guy, who has just been nominated as one of the five finalists as best lead actor in a daytime program for an Emmy. Dante Dominic joins us. Stay tuned. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So we know that the last 15 or 16 months have been strange days for everybody. I mean, they have been weird, weird days. And we know for students, I was going to say in particular, certainly for students, they have been unsettling, maybe not for all students, but certainly for many. We have heard about learning loss. We've heard about mental health challenges. We've heard about emotional challenges. Uh, We've heard about struggles some students are having keeping up and dealing with online education or not online or missed time. So it's hardly a stretch to suggest that while some students have thrived and kept up and advanced and learned everything that they've needed to know to advance to the next grade, others have not. But here's the thing, uh, our, our system generally does not like to hold kids back. We don't like to, I mean, we don't like the word fail at all, but we don't like to hold kids back and make them redo their year. But what do you do if you're a parent and you, after watching what's been going on, have decided your kid is just not ready? Based on everything that's happened, you just believe they they could use another year and look, everything's been strange. Let's catch up a little bit. Do you, do you have the right to request or even demand that they stay back to repeat their year? I want to bring in Monica Ferenzi. She is an education consultant. She is an author. She's an expert in the field. She joins us now. Monica, thank you for doing this today. Very much appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, this is an interesting topic, and I know you've been having discussions with some parents. And I'm wondering, is there a lot of concern out there from parents about whether their kids are ready to move up? Absolutely. It's a growing concern for many, many parents, especially since the second lockdown occurred. And especially since we're into the second year of disrupted learning, I think parents were a little more tolerant with the unexpected closures. Uh, But going into the fall, they're expecting some sort of normalcy to return, but also with a little bit of trepidation because they have been watching their children. They have been assisting their children in that role of teacher at home and find that their their child or children are not ready for the, the next grade up. And so putting them on this conveyor be- belt of education is actually a very scary proposition because there will be effects and later, and it will show up in high school. That's a really interesting word, the conveyor belt of education, which actually is not probably very complementary to the system. But here's the thing, logic, and I'm no educational expert, you are, but logic would suggest that with all the disruptions we've had and the days off and the going from remote to back in class to back in remote and everything else, there is no possible way students could have had the same educational experience this year as they would have had under normal circumstances. That seems impossible. It is because there's 190 scheduled days of instruction in one academic year, and that's at 300 minutes per day. 
students have not been receiving that. If you're in a family with four children where your school board has only given you one device, that means that your child has had to switch up that uh, 300 minutes a day and maybe get 20 minutes out of that day on the device and maybe not even with the class because they weren't able to join at the right time. So they have not received the same amount of education. And and the other part that I find, I don't know if the right word is problematic, but certainly concerning, is that many boards have cancelled exams, which is not the only way to know if students are getting what they need, but it's one way to find out if they are reaching their targets or knowing what they have to know. We've now taken away those exams. We don't know if the students are ready, do we? We, well, we, we don't know. And uh, although st- my, many students rejoice at the prospect of not Absolutely. having to write exams, <laughs> um, I think for students in grade 11 and 12, exams are important because they will face those types of assessments in post-secondary education, whether they pursue college or university, whichever pathway they're planning to go on, they will have those types of examinations. So not allowing students to have exams in grade 11 and 12 is not preparing them for post-secondary education. I would say that for younger students uh, in grades, you know, 9 and 10, not so important. You can, you can assess that learning through a consolidated project or RST, as they call them, some sort of cumulative uh, assignment, uh, some oral assessment with the student one-on-one many ways, but definitely very limited in terms of evidence of learning this year. Even teachers are struggling with how to assess. And I I had an email from a parent that said, look at what the teacher wants me to do while they try to assess me, assess my my child online and ask me to step away. (laughs) I just thought, no, you don't engage in that. That's not fair to you. It's not fair to the child. and It's not proper pedagogical assessment. So just ask for an eye on the report card, which means insufficient evidence to assess. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Our system, our education systems do not like holding people back. They, they blanch at the idea more often than not. But if you're a parent and you really believe your kid isn't ready or could really benefit from having another year in the same grade, do you have the right to ask for that? And should you expect to get it? Absolutely. So school boards are education service providers under Ontario Public Service standards, and so they need to meet the needs of their clients. And students and parents are clients, and so if if the parent comes forward with good rationale and puts their request in writing to the school principal, who may need to check with the superintendent because it is on a case-by-case basis, um, they can request this of the school board and have that uh, request considered and not be given a flat no in response. There is no policy, either from the Ministry of Education or school boards, that prevent this from happening, and it comes back to a child's needs and what is in their best interest. So I do encourage parents to put their requests in writing to the school principal and state their reasons why they believe this is a, a good option for their child at this time and how they believe that uh, giving them additional time, because we're trying to change the terminology about holding back or failing students. It it has such a a negative connotation, but it's really very proactive. So we consider it giving the students additional time. Everything is so Mm. rushed in our society today. What kids need is to slow down, 
they need to be given the all the time they need to master those concepts, not just see them with a blink of an eye and then move on, but they need time for mastery of skills and concepts. That's yeah, that, and that, that's a great point. That's a, that's a great word. And, and I'm wondering if it's your opinion that, I mean, it's one thing for parents to step up and say this, and you're right. I mean, there's a connotation around this. So I'm guessing there's a lot of parents who wouldn't because it would look bad on them if little Johnny or little Sally was now repeating the grade and all of a sudden they look, you know, to their neighbors, it looks like their kid's a dummy, which may not be the case at all, just the circumstance. But should the schools be encouraging this, even without the parents? Should the schools be doing a more vigorous job of saying that kid is just not ready yet. That kid is just not ready yet. Cause I don't see that happening. So interestingly enough in Ontario, we have French language school boards and English language school boards. And what I find through my client practice is that the French school boards will suggest to a parent that the child would benefit from additional year in, in a particular grade, the English school boards balk at it. So you have this dichotomy of practice and philosophy within the same publicly funded education system in Ontario, which Mm. is very puzzling. And so I think that if, and many educators do believe that it would be good in in the child's best interest, but they have to whisper it into the ear of the the, the parent, because if they were to be um, publicly stating this in in terms of a meeting or in a communication to the parent, they would face reprisal uh, from their employer and from their union. But if the idea is, and I think part of the idea here is you want your kids to remain with their cohort because it could be damaging psychologically to them. Do the schools don't seem to a lot of time anyway, have a problem if you've got a gifted kid who wants to skip a grade and they are capable of doing that. That seems to be something that happens still. So we don't seem to mind taking them out of their cohort if they're really ahead, but if they're really behind, we seem to still not like to do that that much. Yeah, the social-emotional aspect is very important as well. But that's when students have those opportunities in school, like at recess, at lunch hour, the extracurricular clubs, the sports teams. They have opportunities to mix with different cohorts of students. So it's really just an extension of that. And ultimately, we want students to stay engaged in learning. If they are continually feeling that they can't keep up or they don't understand it is far better for them to, to get more time to learn what they need. And even a child in kindergarten is, is old enough to understand that, um, you know, maybe I'm going to be with different friends this year because I'll still see my other friends as well. But it, it can be explained very rationally to even the youngest of children that it, it does benefit them in the long run. And students who have grown up and have had that additional time in a, in a particular grade, they, they are not... Um, you know, cognitively or emotionally damaged from that experience. Mm-hmm. Many mm-hmm. say that it was good for them to stay behind and that they would do the same thing for, for their own child if, if they were faced with that decision. So we do have parents who are still part of a generation who may have repeated a grade in the past or may have skipped a grade uh, if they were gifted and, and exceptionally bright in, in certain areas. And particularly at the high school, we allow this to happen. There's a grade 12 student who can take a grade 9 art course. There's a grade 9 student who can mm. take a grade 11 math course. So why is there flexibility uh, after a certain age, but but not at the youngest age where it's most critical? Yeah, unfortunately we have to run, but you know we never got around to the other issue, which is I think this is going to be brutal on teachers 
who are going to either have to backtrack and cover a lot of stuff that they wouldn't normally have to, and then never get finished the curriculum and be criticized or skip over as if nothing happened. And then a bunch of kids fail and be criticized. I think the teachers are going to face a problem with this too, but sadly we don't have time for that today. Maybe another day we'll get into that one. Um, Monica Forenzi, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. So we learned in the last 24 hours or thereabouts that Metrolinx is going to be sending its president and CEO, same person, uh, along with some other reps to council a week from today to answer questions about the long proposed LRT. Now, frankly, it seems a little ridiculous that we're at this point and it's still that we need to have them come because so many questions remain unanswered. Nonetheless, here we are. And so we move forward with that. But the question becomes, among all the other questions, what do councillors want to hear or need to hear from Metrolinx at that meeting in order to finally make a decision once and for all about whether to give the thumbs up or thumbs down to this project? Well, my next guest is, I think, a pretty perfect person to answer that because he's not been a hardline anti-LRT counselor, nor has he been a cheerleader for the project from start to finish. He has had his own questions and that I think puts him, well, I think a lot of people in the city have been one side or the other, but there still are some people in the middle who are like him, who still would love some answers. Uh, it is Councillor Lloyd Ferguson who joins me now. Councillor, thanks for your time today. Well, thanks for having me on. Uh, before we get into all those details and that stuff, uh, is it me or is it a little weird that we don't have these answers already after all these years and there's still so much confusion and still so many questions out there? It seems unusual that we'd still be so confused. Well, yeah, but uh, keep in mind, we never knew how we were going to fund the capital cost until a week and a half ago. When well, the, the, that's the, true. The, the federal government stepped in, so if we couldn't pay for the capital, how are you going to, you're not too concerned about operation and maintenance. And it's been a long time. We've been asking to have Metrolinx and or the MTO to come in and talk to us to answer our questions for a while now, and they've chosen not to do that. And it's pretty clear now the reason is that they've been communicating with others which seems strange because our council is divided on this, as you said in your opening comments. And, and so we're going to get that opportunity next Wednesday. And uh, I do have a series of questions. I've sent them in already. So uh, either Metrolinx or the MTO can, can answer them or our own staff. I have a lot of questions for our own staff about it. Because quite frankly, to my knowledge, we haven't had a discussion about LRT this term, which is, I guess it's coming up in three years, and um, so it's time to get refreshed on it and get some of the big questions affecting the city taxpayers answered before we move forward. Okay, so let's go through a few of these, and and we're not going to have time to go through all the questions that everyone's going to have, but let's go through some of the very big ones here, and we'll start with capital costs. Uh, we know the province has now vowed to pay $1.7 billion and the federal government has vowed $1.7 if somehow capital costs went over that, do we know who would cover those costs? Well, it's unlikely it will. $3.4 billion sounds like a lot of money for the capital cost. Originally, it was going to be $800,000, and this thing was first announced, and then it went up to a billion. And now uh, we got funding committed for $3.4 billion. But, yeah, who's going to take the risk on, on cost overruns? And, uh, but, and do we know? Uh, no. No, okay. I, I, you know, I've heard uh, both ministers, provincial and federal, and you know they did a pretty good presentation on their announcement. But they said they both been committed. 100 percent of the capital costs are going to be covered by the senior levels of government. 
So that's a partial answer. It's a pretty good answer, but you know, I, I want to put the question point blank. You know, if capital costs exceed $3.4 billion, who pays? I fully expect they'll say that's the senior levels of government. Our big issue, I think, is going to be the operation of maintenance. And I'm confused about the numbers. I've heard as low as $6 million annual. I've heard as high as $35 million, which is quite a yep. spread. And, and, and so it's, it's not clear to me. It was always explained to us before, we won't know the O&M cost until they slip the envelope from the proponents. But that was back when the when the... Um, it was to design, build, operate. I'm not sure the operate is part of this, and that's going to be a question. Uh, who's going to operate it? Are you going to operate it, Metrolinx, or is the city going to operate it? And if the city's going to operate it, then it'd be our own staff that would do the maintenance on these trains and operate them. But that, that's not clear yet either. So operation and maintenance costs, both gross and net, because if you listen to all the experts, they're saying that the B line is sold out now, which it is. Uh, buses are... I think every 10 minutes and still passing by sometimes because they're all full. Not as bad since we put more buses on. So there will be significant fare box revenue. So what's the gross cost of operation and maintenance? What's the net cost? What happens to the many, many, many buses that are currently on the B-line? Are they retired? And if so, you know, we're going to have quite a savings there because it takes a lot less people to operate a few trains than all those buses because the train carries 200 people. And a bus carries, depending whether it's articulated or conventional, between 40 and 60 people. And, and so uh, that one bothers me. Is the cost of operation maintenance going to be area rated? Currently, transit is paid for, for by awards one through eight. And then for any services that the suburban municipalities want, we pay a rate per kilometer. So if a question to our staff, will the operation and maintenance cost be borne by awards one through eight? I think that's an important question. What happens to all the incentives now that we offer to uh, downtown developers? We put a lot of incentive in place a number of years ago to encourage people to develop downtown, and it's worked. Look at downtown. For years we had no cranes. Now we got all kinds of them. But incentives like development charges, we get a 50% reduction to any development in the downtown area. That's a lot of money. We give tax relief through a, a tax um, phase-in program where any new building starts at zero tax increase and is phased in over 10 years, so it goes up 10% per year, is that now gone? Because no other part of the city enjoys those two things. And also we have the Erase program, which is a grant that we provide to help clean up brownfields. Because the taxpayers are going to be investing $3.4 billion, are all those incentives gone? And if they are, well, those incentives pay the operation and maintenance costs. These are important questions, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just before the break, you said you had one more you wanted to get to. Go ahead, and then I'm going to jump in with a few questions here for you. Okay, my last one is a parochial one. Uh, is, uh, as your listeners, I'm sure they know that I represent the people of Ancaster. And, and to uh, once the LRT is built from the drawings that I saw before it got canceled, there was only going to be one lane... Uh, one of them was eastbound on King Street to allow access to get to the parking ramps in the downtown area. And I recall, and of course my memory is a little faded because it's been years now, that that extended right out past Queen Street. So if you're from Ancaster, you're not going to drive down the hill, park a car because there's no place to park it, get on the train, take it downtown. You're going to continue to come downtown by car. So the LRT does nothing for them. And, but it is a $3.2 billion investment in our city, or $3.4 billion investment in our city. 
The problem is going to be how to get home. Because if King Street's down to one lane, it's really a local road now rather than an arterial road. And so if you're going to go home, you need a westbound access to 403. So you might go over to Cannon, take Cannon over. There's no sense coming up Queen because it's going to be down to one lane. If you go up to Dundurn, it may, I'm not sure, the May situation may be the same because at that point at Dundurn, the train starts to fly over the 403 and come in at the Main Street area once you get on the west side of the 403. You can't take York Boulevard out because there's no westbound ramp off York Boulevard on the 403. So I have 42,000 constituents in Ancaster. If they want to go downtown to work, shop, go to any of those amazing new restaurants and existing restaurants downtown, which I, you know, I do regularly, and I think a lot of my constituents do, how do they get home? I don't know. And, and uh, you know, Councilman's wisdom, against my better judgment, decided to choke up Aberdeen and, and allow all-day parking on, on both directions on Aberdeen, which reduces that capacity by 50%. So Aberdeen won't be a choice. So how are, are my constituents, who may be asked to pay some of the operation and maintenance costs, going to get out of downtown? They, it, you know, it's not reasonable to expect them to go over to uh, Wellington Street and go up to Scarpman, cross Upper James, and get on the link. And, and so uh, it's, a, it's a major, major question that I have for my constituents. So that's my fourth one, Scott. No, and, and I think it's a fair one. I think a lot of people would ask that same question. Now, here's the here as I made a list of some of the things that you were talking about, that one notwithstanding, because that's a design issue. One of the things that strikes me when you talk about what about the fares from HSR? What about the downtown grants? What about the tax relief for those downtown buildings? What about the bus savings and other things? Those seem like they're all municipal issues. So I'm looking at this meeting with the Metrolinx person, CEO and president. I don't, I don't see how he's going to be able to really offer a whole lot of clarity to whittle down what that number is going to be that everybody wants to know that's a bottom line operating cost from the city. It seems like he's going to come and we're still going to be confused about what the operating costs are going to be. Well, as I said at the start, I also have questions for our own staff. And, and, but I think what I need clarity from, from Metrolinx and from the provinces, are they still going to operate it or do our staff operate it now? Is it simply mm. build it, turn it over, or do they continue to want to own it and operate it? And if Which is works, better? Which is better for us, do you think? Well, it depends what they're going to charge for operation and maintenance. And we don't know that. We don't know our own staff costs. We don't know their costs. Somewhere between six, $6 million and $40 million, so somewhere in that range per year. And so I have that question for them. I have the question about this design, you know, and, and mm. it's a huge choke issue. And, and uh, you know, to cut off the, uh, the suburban municipalities, particularly the West Mountain, you know, that Ward 14 area and Ward 12 and Castor, how are people going to get home from the downtown? And, and they're not going to take the train out to the Spectator building, park their car there, and then uh, drive on home from there. And, and so that design issue is a central one. Area rating uh, is a decision of council under the recommendation of staff, and the incentives is a city decision. So I have questions for both parties. Do you, you, you've mentioned a few times, and, and I've seen those same numbers for anywhere from 6 million to 30 million plus. I don't know if I've seen quite as high as 40 anywhere, but could be. Um, when you, do you have a number in mind of what is an acceptable amount that you're saying, uh, you know, we can live with paying this much if we have to operate or maintain, but there's a number I won't go above? Well, there's obviously a number 
that I would like to get to, because if we if we get rid of the incentives, and why the heck wouldn't we if taxpayers are going to invest $3.2 billion to And this just serves the lower city. We're going to invest $3.2 billion in a higher order of transit, which the downtown councilors, other than Chad, want and repeatedly ask for. It doesn't make sense to me if there's $3.4 billion of taxpayer money going into this, why we would continue to offer developers incentives to develop downtown. Because, you know, whether, you know, everybody, the mayor, Joe Manson, all of them talk about this economic uplift. Well, that's a big economic uplift. Are we going to retire those buses? If so, if you get the combination of the savings from those incentives and the savings from taking all those buses off the road, maybe it'll cost nothing extra to operate it than what we're already paying. That's my perfect number. It is a, uh, it's going to be a fascinating meeting next Wednesday. Um, I would expect uh, a lot of pointed questions and I am really hoping, I am really hoping, and I think probably Lloyd, you are, and most counselors are as well, that there are some solid answers, not just, well, it depends, because if it's a whole lot of, well, it depends, I don't think that's going to move this conversation anywhere other than to more frustration and more disputes and more fights about this. So we will, we will see. Uh, Lloyd Ferguson, Councillor Lloyd Ferguson, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday, uh, the daytime Emmy nominations came out for those who do their acting on daytime TV. And I'm looking down the list and I'm thinking, hmm, I see under outstanding lead actor, no sign of Victor Newman. I thought that he was just, you know, a guy who always go. I thought that was just a, a thing. The award was probably named after him. No sign. But you know who was there? Hamilton's Dominic Zampronia. Yes, Dante from General Hospital, Hamilton's own, one of five nominees as one of the best leading men in daytime television, joins us now. Dominic, congratulations. This is outstanding. Way to go. Hey, thank you, Scott. It's uh, pretty cool, man. It's a pretty big honor, I think, you know, to to be recognized. I've been nominated a few times in the supporting. Oh, are we, Dominic, are you there? No, let's try again, I'm Ben. There, let's see I'm if there. we can. can oh, are we? Okay, now we got him back. We'll try. We'll see what we can do, and then we'll keep. Uh, we'll try again if we have to. But yeah, you have been nominated before. But I got to tell you, I'm amazed that you haven't been nominated. First of all, more often, but also according to Internet Movie Database, you've done 1,126 episodes of the show. I mean, you've you've been doing this for a while now. Well, yeah, I got there about 10, 10 11 years ago, and I took a little bit, bit of a break from. Uh, from the show after my last contract was up. And then I went back, they called me after the pandemic yeah, break last year and uh, asked if I wanted to go back. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to go back. And uh, when it came time to do the nominations, you submit yourself. And so you kind of got to go based on what you think, if you think you've got material that's you know worthy of being submitted. And uh, our producer said he really wanted me to do the lead actor this year instead of supporting, which I'd done in the past. I've been nominated about four times in the past for supporting, but this is the first time for lead. So it, uh, it feels good. Yeah, but no Victor Newman, man. That's kind of, I wanted to be up against Big Vic, you know? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so as you say, you've been at this for a long time now. And I got to ask you, if I had talked to you back, I don't know, 20, 30, 30 years ago now, maybe, uh, when you were back doing, getting your start at Theater Aquarius with your dad and you were working with Nick Cordero, who everybody knows, very sad story, but I mean, a guy who you knew very well and, and trained with, got your start with. If I had said you would be 
up for a first of all you'd be in a soap opera for as long as you are but also that you would be up for awards for this what would you have said uh i probably would have said my parents and my grandparents would have been stoked because they were very big soap opera fans (laughs) (laughs) were you uh i was not i you know we forced we were kind of i I remember going to my grandparents house and every day at 12 30 my grandfather would get up from the kitchen table and he'd disappear into the living room and supposedly it was to put on my grandmother's favorite show, which was Young and the Restless. But we made the joke that it wasn't her favorite show. It was actually his favorite show because he's the only one who knew it was 1230 every single time. So uh, he would have been pretty stoked. My mom would have been definitely stoked uh, if she was still with us. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have believed it if you told me that then because I, I never pictured I'd be you know, living in LA for the last 11 years on a soap opera to begin with. It's been, it's been a pretty good ride. Dom, it seems to me, and look, I I have no idea what I'm talking about on this, but it it strikes me with the, with the, the daily aspect of this and the grind and everything else. It seems that this is a different lifestyle, a different acting job from a lot of other acting jobs you have, you would have. Is that fair? Uh, Doing a soap opera, I mean? Oh, totally. I mean, right from day one, I, I remember my first day on the show and I, walked in i said where's the, i said where's lunch and they said oh no there is no lunch you got to go to the commissary and i was like oh okay so i walked over to the commissary and i grabbed a bunch of food and uh i walked out the door and they're like no no you got to pay and i'm like oh okay like <laughs> most uh most shows you're on you know you walk in you get you get breakfast as soon as you get there you get uh lunch and dinner every six hours after that and, and you definitely don't have to pay but you know it's just the i consider it kind of like the uh you know, Hamilton, I've always, it's a very blue collar city, you know, hardworking people. And, uh, and I've always kind of taken pride in being from Hamilton. And I feel like if there ever is any, an entertainment equivalent to what Hamilton historically had done well, it was the soap opera is kind of the working man's <laughs> uh, acting gig. You know what I mean? So, uh, well, what is the process, Dom? I mean, take, give well, us an idea do, because you're shooting every day, right? Yeah, we do five days a week. And if like we're currently off for two weeks because uh, Memorial Day holiday coming up this weekend. But uh, we're, t- we're five days a week and we shoot from our cameras start rolling at 830 every day. And uh, we usually do 12 to 14 hour days. Now, that doesn't mean I'm in 12 to 14 hour days, but uh, you could be anywhere from you know, called in first thing in the morning and you could be done by lunch some days. You could be done, you know, you could be called in at 7 a.m. And, and do 10 scenes and then have a four-hour break while they do other scenes and then you're up after that, after lunch or something like that. But we do 70 scenes a day, which is insanity. Wow. Um, yeah. Most shows do, you know, maybe eight to 10 scenes a day. And they we do, we do, sorry, my kid's trying to break out of the car as a kid. <laughs> we do we do um you know about about 100 pages a day of dialogue which is it's it's crazy it's like a uh it's it's a grinder you know and we we just you got to be prepared you got to know your lines if you don't have that part of the job down you usually don't last too long um and when do you get those lines it, how far in advance do you, you get, get your a, script probably about five days ahead of time you get them so you take a quick glance but usually you're working on the episodes that you're shooting in the days leading up to and so you're really kind of we always say the real work is kind of done at home like on your own time making sure you're completely off book so that 
when you get on set, you know, a lot of the times what you see on TV, we've shot one or two takes maximum. Like it's only a rare occasion we get a third take and almost never do we get a fourth take. And, and do you get rehearsal? Exactly like it would be. You get a block. You we do dry blocking in the morning uh, for just the director and the actors, and then we have a rehearsal for cameras, and uh, and then you shoot it. And uh, hmm. you know, it's like walking a tightrope a lot of days. It, you, there's very few days where you go home where you feel like you nailed the scene. But you know, once you see it on TV, it's like ah, oh, actually, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. No, no. And, and you know what? I'll say this, uh, that, that amount of exposure being on TV every single day, how, how long did it take when you started on that show until you were out in public and people started recognizing you from that show? Uh, it happened pretty quick because they, they really blitzed this character from the beginning. It was like a legacy, you know, Sonny Corinthos' son. Um, so the, 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 the story was talked about for months before my character even debuted and then uh the fans actually the ones who weren't crazy about my character at the beginning they, they dubbed me everyday dante because i was on every day so uh if i would go out to the mall and the you know the there's an outdoor shopping area here that we used to go to a lot and get people come up to you pretty much within a couple months of bearing and they wanted <laughs> to give you a big hug because you're on their in their living room every day and did they um, talk to you as Dominic or Dante when they when they come up to you? A lot of the time, they, a lot of the time they they, they refer, fans refer to you as your character name, um, which is cool. I mean, you know, a lot of times we're we're on like, like I said, five days a week in their house. It used to be during the day. Now I guess it's kind of anytime during the day, anytime anyone gets to watching due to streaming and stuff like that. But yeah, it's uh, you know, New York is the craziest. Like I remember going to New York and at eleven o'clock at night. Walking down the street, you got construction workers, you know, scaffolding. Hey, Dante! You know, like, <laughs> they're just—they're huge fans. Like New York is a huge fan base, and uh, and the show is based in a, in a suburb of New York, a very Italian uh, suburb of New York. So we get a lot of love over there. And so you go over there, you, you feel like, you know, it's funny. We went there for dinner one time, and, and we walked in during the feast of. Uh, uh, Oh, oh my God, the Italian feast, I forget, it's slipping my brain right now. But it was, uh, we walked up to the restaurant and the cast member that I was with, uh, she's like, let's go to this restaurant. It's my favorite restaurant. And we got there and there was a huge line. And she said, uh, they, they freaked out as soon as we walked up the steps. and said, oh my God, you're Dante and Lulu. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know who we are? He's like, yeah, yeah, we, we watch you guys every day. You guys are huge in New York. I'm like, okay, cool. So then they're like, they rolled a, a you know, a, a table up, like literally created a table for pretty much out of nowhere and, and that, that was that doesn't happen often, but that was pretty, pretty fun. Well, my understanding is soap fans. And again, because of the, just the amount you're on TV and, and, and it's like every day they get to follow this, they can be pretty intense. Yeah. I stepped in it a bit on social media a couple of weeks ago. I, uh, they're, they're trying to put my character with, uh, with Kelly Monaco's character who plays Sam McCall. And Sam typically has been with, Steve Burton's character, who's Jason, for many, many, many years. And uh, they have a really hardcore fan base. And uh, some some people really like that they're trying something new with, with Dante and Sam, and some people really don't. And uh, and they let you have it, man. <laughs> you got you to gotta, you gotta have some thick skin. You want to hang out with those fans. 
Well, let me ask you because I went on one of the fan pages today, and and like this is this is how intense. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and I don't even know if you would know this stuff that I was able to dig out that the fans know about your character, not about you, about your character. Do you know what your character's blood type is? No. See, apparently, so what, in, what, what blood type I have? In on t- September 28, 2011, you were A negative. Really. How they knew that. All right. What are you allergic to? What is your character allergic to? Oh, I think they wrote that in. Uh, it was allergic to like latex or something like that. Well, maybe, but also goldenrod. You, you were you were allergic to goldenrod. And how did you break your wrist as a child, your character? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I don't remember, Scott. How did I break my wrist when I was a kid? You were in a little league game. That's what they said in 2011. Look, I, I'm I was looking through this stuff, going, "Who are the people who are coming up with this stuff?" Yeah, but they, you're they, a super fan, aren't you? We're they've out a cited lot about the dates. Scott Radley, right now. Yeah, no, they've cited the <laughs> dates of all these things. Like there are people who are taking notes on you. Oh, and I should ask you, how many times has Dante been shot? Uh, I think I've been shot twice. Three, according to this, three times. You've had it rough. Oh. It, uh, you've had it, according to this. My, dad, in, my own dad shot me once, and that's pretty bad. It doesn't get much worse than that. Well, according to this, in addition to being shot three times, you've been knocked unconscious 17 times, stabbed with a pen, stabbed with a syringe, choked, bitten, smothered, drugged, thrown overboard, hit by a car, pushed down the stairs, pinned under a vehicle, tortured, exposed to malaria, and brainwashed. That's a yes, full but day. Never, but never, Scott, sent down an elevator shaft, which is why I'm still alive. <laughs> Not like Joey Tribbiani. That's right, man. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Drake Ramore. You, you've escaped the Dr. Drake Ramore thing. That's right. I mean, he have probably you, couldn't learn his lines. That's probably true. Have you ever gotten your script, though, and just looked at it and went, okay, so that's where we're going to go today. Okay, all right, we'll do that. Well, actually, yeah, the stabbing, the syringe stabbing happened in January, and I, I, I was like, oh, this was a short-lived comeback. You know? <laughs> Um, but it, it was just a temporary, uh, temporary setback, you know? Um, but yeah, there's, there's some stuff that, that you look at and you think, oh, wow, we're going to, you know, we've done some location stuff and, and those are always fun because we never get to do them. Um, until you realize the location might be like the parking lot and we're just going outside, (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's good, man. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, honestly. And it, it feels a lot like a, a theater experience and, and takes mm. me back. The reason why I like it so much is it, it reminds me of my days kind of growing up in Hamilton, going to theater school and stuff like that. And, and the, the camaraderie and the, the family type atmosphere that we have there, it, it's very much the same. Like our ground floor is all our dressing rooms and, and everyone kind of hangs out down there in the hallways, you know, shooting the breeze. And, uh, and then you get called up to set for your scenes and, and then, the, you know, we got a green room where just like a, like the theater has where we got our coffee and stuff like that. And, and it's just, you know, everyone becomes family and, and you really miss that when you're not there to, to really, uh, it's, a, it's a great, uh, it's a great gig, man. Honestly. Let me ask you a personal question, leaving the character aside for a minute, because you've got three youngish kids of your own, right? You, you, mm-hmm. Three, yeah. like 11, 12 and, and less. I got six, three girls, six, eight and 10. Okay. Do they watch the show? They don't watch the show really, no. Why? 
No, I'm just, I, I, it's one of the questions that I always have for actors. Cause you know, when you're in a soap opera, there are things you're going to be kissing people who aren't their mom necessarily, or shooting right. people or fighting. And I wonder how you explain that to young kids when they see that, how do you make that clear that this is daddy's job and his work and it's not real. And me with you and your mom, that's real. I think, uh, they're only now kind of getting to that age where, where you, I'd probably have to worry about having those kinds of conversations. I think before they weren't, they were just not interested. Um, I think now my 10 year old is at the point where she wants to try acting and, you know, we'll probably have to have those kinds of discussions, but actually during the pandemic break, um, the show aired a bunch of old episodes from when I first got on there. And, uh, and there were episodes that I thought were really great. Some of the, some of the coolest stuff that, that we did was when I first got on the show and, and of getting shot by Sonny and stuff like that. And Olivia runs in and screams that oh, you just shot your son. And, uh, and none of them really, really care. They, they just don't, they want to know who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. And, you know, why are you talking to a good guy here? And why are you talking to a bad guy here? You know, that sort of thing. And it's, it's, it's much less, um, much less about all that other stuff, the, the kissing and stuff that, that we haven't really had those conversations yet. It's funny because they're all in the car listening to me right now. Now I'm going to have to explain the whole thing to them when I get off the phone with you. <laughs> but it's a soap opera. There's always going to be that stuff, right? There's, there's going to be those things that, okay, so we're going to let you go, but walk me through one or two, because it seems to me that, that in soaps, there are a couple things that are unique. Uh, to other acting and one of them it walked me through the end of the scene pause i don't know if, if there's a like a thing in soap opera but when you know that the, the, the cameras is that what it's called yeah when you got to hold your position because the thing's going to a commercial yeah 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 those are those are terrible we call that like who gets stuck with the egg on their face this time <laughs> because sometimes it's sometimes it makes sense because like you're you're in an intense moment and 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 really, uh, like that takes you back to stage too. Like you're on a stage, you kind of you typically wait for, you know, the blackout of a, you know, the lights go out. You got to hold that moment. You know what I mean? So, um, th- those things that I, I don't really mind them is like if, especially if you're in an, a dramatic kind of moment, that stuff's not as difficult to play. Sometimes you're having a joking scene and you're and you're and you're laughing and and you feel awkward at the end of a maybe, but but. Uh, most of the time, my character is not laughing. He's usually angry about stuff, so it works well for me. Well, the uh, the the 48th annual daytime Emmys will be June 25th. They're going to be broadcast on CBS. Uh, Dominic, as I say, one of five, along with two of your. Uh, the, is it awkward that two of your colleagues, two of your co-stars on General Hospital, are also up for lead actor? I mean, one of you guys is coming home happy, probably, and the other two. Do you just like? No, we just might have to might have to take care of them before the night, so they can't show up. <laughs> Not but June twenty fifth, June twenty fifth is when you can tune in and see uh, see Dominic win his daytime Emmy. We're we're going fully <laughs> confident on this one, Dominic. No win pressure. his daytime no Emmy. Pressure. No pressure. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate it, man. It's uh, it's really important to me, and I feel great representing Hamilton. Well, absolutely. And when you do win, you got to bring that home one of these days when you come home to visit your dad. You're going to have to come home and uh, and get some photos around Hamilton of that award. But uh, Dom, we uh, look, we will be chatting with you that day when you win it. But I appreciate you taking some time today. Sounds good, Scott. Thanks for having me, man. That is, uh, I was going to call him Dante. That is, well, he is Dante. That is Dominic Zampronia of Hamilton up for lead, outstanding lead actor in the annual Daytime Emmy Awards. They were nominated yesterday. The nominations came out yesterday. As I say, they will be given out on June the 25th. He's been nominated four times previously as Best Supporting Actor 
This is the first time as a lead actor, though. And if you don't know, I mean, his family, I assume many people in this city know the Zampronia name. Uh, his dad, Lou, has been a is a legend in the local theater with Theater Aquarius and uh, so many other uh, things. I mean, his, his dad, as I say, just a legend around here. His sister, uh, Gemma Zampronia, is an actor who has been in a million different things as well. Avonlea, the old TV show, she was in that and a bunch of other stuff. And and you can also uh, find Dominic, go online and, and look up his list of things. I mean, he's been in a ton of other stuff as well. This is hardly his uh, his first go around. Anyway, good luck to him. And we will, the day he wins and or the day after he wins, and we are holding confidence that he will, we'll have him back on and uh, talk about winning that one. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.